So this is a, a very close friend and colleague of mine, uh, John Traeger. John's got a very interesting background, uh, lots of pre-hospital experience. He's actually got two bachelor's degrees, one from McGill, one from York. And following that, he went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, where he graduated um, in 2009, and uh, followed that up with an excellent emergency medicine residency at Temple in Philadelphia. Following that, um, still eager for more pain and punishment, he decided to do uh, a critical care fellowship uh, um, and did that at Cooper, which is an outstanding training program. And then following that, uh, immediately landed a very important leadership role at St. Luke's, where he is currently our, the medical director for um, critical care transport and emergency medical services. He's also highly involved in there as a faculty member in their critical care fellowship. In addition to all of this, um, he has a very robust presence on social media. You will find him at just about any transport meeting. Uh, there is no question that he is an absolute subject matter expert on this topic, which you're about to hear. And uh, and, on, and on, I guess the final comment would be we, are, we can congratulate him for recently being commissioned in the United States Air Force as a major. So he was directly promoted to major, which is awesome. Uh, he's a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Um, he's also a fellow of the American College of Chest Physicians. Um, without further ado, we're very happy this afternoon to have Dr. Jonathan Traeger talking about patient transport in between and within. Thank you. How's that? Good. Like wonderful. And let's see if this works. Great. All right. So thank you everyone for coming. This is uh, truly an honor. Uh, it's too bad that Jim or Dr. Elisha couldn't be here. Every time we're in Baltimore, he would always seem to be away. So it could be a message that I get to read into more. Uh, so as uh, Sam said, this is uh, certainly an area of interest of mine. Uh, since my days in EMS and paramedic and then getting involved in the critical care transport realm. And so I hope you will get something out of this uh, for your careers now and later on as you sort of move out into, into the real world uh, and uh, have to make these decisions uh, you know, for yourself and for your patients. Uh, so I would certainly notice closures. It will be better be so in fact, we're going to be going to review uh, sort of the history of EMS and transport medicine, uh, how we got where we are today, and then I'm going to break this down into uh, sort of reviews of intra-possible transport and intra, and it's very amazing because oftentimes when people talk about these subjects, everyone just says intra-hospital, they really mean between two hospitals, and so we all know that is not the correct English. Uh, so, you know, dating back as far as biblical times, of course, I'm not truly religious in I thought this was sort of fascinating. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke, where basically you have a certain man down from Jerusalem to Jericho and following thieves and end up being wounded and left by the side of the road. And then a few people sort of come and pass by and on shopping and say, I'm not going to really trust this. Uh, until we had the Good Samaritan uh, as he was on his journey and saw what he was and, and had compassion on him and essentially loaded him up on his donkey and transferred him to the hospital where they packed his wounds with oil and wine. It sounds absolutely wonderful and it would be great therapy if we could do this to everybody and cover ourselves as well. And so this is sort of the first example of you know a real good example of a person carrying and transporting you know, their uh, fellow human being who has been wounded. Certainly back to probably the Crusades times, we have, you know, circa 1380, our wounded man is being carried away on a medical stretcher. And then most people are familiar with the concept of uh, Babel, Mabe, and Chronochal originally, so like the French is so pretty good. 
uh, who uh, developed this unrealizable boat, and uh, the translation, of course, is a flying ambulance after who said, wow, look, we can move artillery really quickly along the battlefield, but yet we're sort of suffering and moving our wounded soldiers quickly, and said, let's develop this, this nice uh, sort of ambulance wagon in about 1797, and uh, you know, a really great, uh, really great design here, all the comforts of home that you can fathom with fast horses to evacuate soldiers. Uh, the World Fair in 1812 had Surgeon James Mann basically say uh, to facilitate the movement of a hospital department attached to an army because they really had not for any sort of means to transport or wagons or whatnot for the U.S. military. It should be furnished with a number of wagons and teams with rentals and either to take the wounded from the field of battle and transport the sick in case of a retrograde march or a new ambulance after having recovered from wounds to the hospital. And for this is sort of an interesting quote if you want to extend a little to the concept of medical transport really back to, uh, you know, 1812. Uh, and so here we are today, you know, great technology starting from sort of a very basic world. This, unfortunately, this design never came to fruition, uh, most probably because of politics, uh, as, as it certainly affects a lot of the decisions that happen in medicine. But the Moses ambulance wagon uh, was sort of designed in 1858 by a surgeon, uh, Dr. Moses. And this very interesting sort of surrounding was a tent that you could attach to which could accommodate 30 wounded soldiers and, and people to take care of them and shave them from the elements, which was really a, an unbelievable design. And nowadays, it essentially used for mass casualties. And it's just incredible that these things would have never uh, actually came to fruition back in the day. There's a variety of, of sort of different design ambulances and wagons from you know, the early 1800s, 1700s that uh, a lot were never uh, actually put into practice or into use. The uh, Howard ambulance wagon you know, certainly designed this nice custom bench with uh, support mechanism to allow for a softer, gentler ride of evacuation of, uh, of soldiers away. And here's an actual example of a patient being loaded into that exact structure back in the days. Uh, the sort of concept of, of air medical transport uh, was not necessarily originated in this, but a lot of people sort of say the siege of Paris where they reportedly evacuated wounded uh, soldiers or wounded civilians and balloons. Really, these were more male balloons and sort of quick evacuation balloons for the average citizen. And so the, the belief is that there really was no medical use of these balloons, however great uh, it sounds. Uh, right? In 1895, from the Tri-State Medical Journal, we have the first uh, electric ambulance. So if you could imagine your trolley car transporting you know, TB patients and, and whomever needed to get to a asylum or facility. And uh, then in, uh, in Australia, they sort of uh, jumped on this as well and said, hey, this is a great idea, and we're, and we're going to implement this. And it was great because this is the only electric ambulance in the world. It is the messenger of mercy, a successful innovation, and a credit to the everyday health commissioner of St. Louis. So the beginnings of where we are now, I can't imagine, you know, a trolley running up the streets of Baltimore or Philadelphia to transport uh, patients, but you never know. Uh, we could always re you know, regress back to that time. What is now uh, the University of Cincinnati or uh, Cincinnati Medical Center sort of started uh, in this fashion, uh, 1865, they, they sort of had an ambulance service. And just some examples of you know, how far things have come and some, some of the initial designs, this one from 1891. And then during sort of the uh, Civil War, they uh, used uh, these uh, tugboats or steamboats, this one in Jacobs Trader in Cincinnati as well, 
uh, was actually used not only to transport mail, but they used uh, they used it to move or transport soldiers from the battlefield back up to sort of civilization so they could get modern medical care. For those of us who went through residency and those who are still in residency or fellowship, the, uh, in New York, they basically uh, had a plan to put this ambulance uh, service into, 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 um, into action. And uh, Dr. Duncan, me, and Robert Taylor said, hey, great, look, we have all these residents. Uh, why don't we just sort of force them to do this work and we'll pay them a, a, a nominal small fee and give them, you know, a crazy 12-hour shift and one day off every four weeks. And the residents and the trainees basically said, yes, we're not going to do this. And they ended up doing it anyway in the end because the powers prevailed. And so this, if you think our lives are bad and challenging in residents and fellowship, look at this. Okay. So as late as 25, the interns were earning the same $50 a month their grandfathers had received. So no significant change. Not much difference today is there except for inflation. And then we start getting into the concept of um, electrically powered, actual, independently mobile ambulances, not necessarily uh, sitting on a track. Two horsepower, so these are actually some logistics to horses. Uh, we know there's obviously problems with, uh, with horses. And uh, these could, uh, you know, transport probably one patient around. And uh, a variety of them, uh, you know, were around the country, first in Chicago at Michael Reese Hospital in 1999. And just some more examples, this is a hospital in the city of New York where the patient would go in here, and you have this very nice chap driving along. And so we are obviously here today. This is sort of the spectrum of where we started from a transport modality, a piece of equipment or vehicle to get patients moved between, mostly from the pre-hospital setting into a facility, not necessarily in between hospitals. And just some sort of real life examples of, of what it was like. You know, animals attendant would sit here, and the patient here, and have some oxygen rigging, and of course the driver up front. And this was a sort of a very nice uh, synopsis of 50 years of EMS, where we started from. And so in 1968, we had this paper, Accidental Death and Disability and Neglected Disease in Modern Society, which basically was an impetus to develop what we have as a modern EMS system. Officially said, we are not doing anything right. So we're basically scooping up and picking up and running and loading, and that was that. We get to the hospital, hopefully the patient will survive. Uh, in 1967, we had these gentlemen in Pittsburgh, and a lot of people don't realize this. This was actually the very first paramedic program in the United States of America. There was so much debate, we're the first, and we're the first. This was the program, and this was actually started by uh, Peter Saffer, who was, as most people will know, the sort of father of modern resuscitation medicine. And they basically said, we're going to be in the, um, uh, uh, the House sort of hill district of, of Pittsburgh. There was a lot of poverty and, and violence and, and sort of you know, challenging uh, living, uh, uh, living arrangements. And so we're going to take these gentlemen and we're going to turn them into paramedics. And they did that. They taught them how to do sort of the benefits of the skills and the treatment of intubation. And this truly was the beginning of the modern advanced life support system. There's Dr. Safra there. And sort of the concept of, you know, here are these providers learning this craft. And so from 1967 to 1975, this service did an, an absolutely unbelievable job. This young lady here is Dr. Nancy Caroline, who, for those of you who are interested in the world of EMS, uh, was sort of one of the very, I guess, first originators of, again, modern EMS. And she was a medical director while working as a resident. And uh, wrote, this was her very first copy of Emergency Care on the Streets. This is the current edition today. 
Uh, and you know, you have certainly antiquated equipment, which certainly did the job, uh, but a, you know, nonetheless, a great and sort of humble beginnings to where we are now doing the modern resuscitation techniques that we practice, you know, so readily. And oftentimes just take for granted where they sort of came from, right? So you know, here's uh, Dr. Saffer, the chief of the Baltimore Fire Department, and uh, one of our anesthesiologists doing sort of the first CPR chest compression research uh, you know, that was ever undertaken. This is about all that is left of Freedom House today. Uh, there, uh, some of the providers are still around. There is a gentleman who actually made a film documentary about this, which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, so for those of you who are interested, uh, you can certainly find it online and they do come around to, uh, you know, to, to show them the video. And so where are we now? So 1980, you know, again, the great debate who was the first paramedic program, 1980 CLA. I actually attended this program, uh, not in 1981, but in 1998, uh, at the Pennsylvania College of which was Williamsport Hospital at the time. And so we've obviously have grown uh, since this time uh, to expand our paramedic education. And then back in the day, it was glass IV bottles and practicing IV skills. And not much has changed except for now we just don't have the glass IV bottles anymore. The skills are pretty much the same. And you know, from a CPR, ACLS standpoint, we've had a lot of changes over the last many years. Because when I actually started, we were still uh, doing transcutaneous pacing for asystole, which nowadays is seemingly totally a bizarre concept. Uh, I am from Pennsylvania uh, originally, but this is where I work, and certainly <laughs> we have a variety of levels of pre-hospital training, anything from basic to paramedic and hospital physician. This is actually my daughter here during one of our uh, annual reviews, and she intubated a mannequin. Uh, probably the most efficient that I've ever seen after practicing for about an hour and a half on her own and all of my providers came in and I said, all right, everyone see this? The young man is intubated, let's, let's get with it. Right. And since we're here in the great state of Maryland, this is uh, you know, some of the stuff you should be familiar with. So in our basic level, our advanced, and then we have our mostly pre-hospital uh, you know, flight program through the Maryland State Police. Right. In uh, 1903, uh, the Wright brothers, Wilbur and Orville, said, hey, let's design this, this, this thing called an airplane and let's see what we can do with it. And obviously now we know, you know what has come from their initial design. For those of you who have not been to the Outer Banks or Kitty Hawk, this is the actual uh, monument uh, that is resurrected over the plaque at that site. Uh, this is my own picture. Yes. Uh, that sort of commemorates uh, this, this great innovation which has brought us to where we are now. Again, it's that we just take for granted. In 1909, uh, Captain George Dawson, who was a U.S. Army Medical Officer, and Lieutenant Melville wrote to the Coast Artillery Corps, probably the preset predecessor of the Coast Guard, said, hey, we have this airplane that these two brothers just built. Why can't we move this or use this to meet patients uh, that are wounded? And of course, the Baltimore uh, Sun, uh, on uh, Tuesday morning, May 4th, 1909, said, well, the hazard of being severely wounded was sufficient without the additional hazard of transportation by airplane, right? And so, you know, no matter how much progress we try to make, especially in modern medicine, you guys will see it, you're probably already seeing it, there is always, you know, some force that wants to say, well, hold on a second, uh, maybe we should take a look at this. And so this was sort of cool at the time, and they managed to transport one patient and the program was grounded. Uh, no pun in um, November of 15, 1915, this was uh, the first heavier-than-air evacuation uh, uh, retreat of the Serbian Army in Albania using this 
Blue Jay 14 bomber, where they basically said, all right, well, so we have a plane, we're not bombing anybody because we're retreating, so why don't we load a bunch of wounded people onto it and get them moving? Of course, they didn't have, you know, they had no one to prepare their ships properly, uh, the planes and rifle shots, you know, of, of the enemy, and so certainly a very high-risk uh, maneuver uh, to, to do, you know, the normal work of, of moving patients who were wounded. In, uh, uh, 1917 uh, in Turkey, this is the first recorded British ambulance flight of a soldier who was in a chemical who was reportedly wounded in the ankle. And the thought was that uh, it would take three days to evacuate this soldier in this in this plane here, which is uh, in the Havilland DH9, where you can see the patient department back here. Uh, but putting him in the airplane took only about 45 minutes to get him evacuated. And so these are very important concepts that we sort of bring to today. Who needs to move and how quickly do they need to move? Right? Are these life-saving interventions or do we have a little bit of time on our side? And so certainly moving the ankle at that time probably could have been you know, horrible uh, wound infection and sepsis and, and, uh, and significant clinical decline. So getting this person to medical care uh, immediately uh, was, was paramount. In 1926, uh, the U.S. of course again was deployed to uh, to South America, Central America, and uh, used a, a very similar plane to evacuate troops from Nicaragua down to Panama during the Banana Wars. And this is the actual uh, flag of Nicolasa uh, uh, Sandino, who was uh, the current concept of the term the Sandinistas, which is where this came from. So as we see. Uh, you know, uh, the airplane started to be used uh, more prominently in uh, medical evacuation. And here again, 1927 in Texas, there was a tornado that, that damaged a town, and of course the military said, hey, uh, let's send in uh, a variety of planes, which include this Cox Clement, which had uh, now passenger or a uh, protected area for the pilot. The previous airplanes certainly had no protection for the pilot, so if you're in the elements or whatnot, you have a high chance of, of crashing. Trying to get the volume up here, we'll find that out. So this is a video of uh, the what is now known as the Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, in Australia. It was started uh, officially as Australian Mission Air uh, Aero Medical Service in 1928. The story of the Royal Flying Doctor Service started in 1912. Back then, when people in the outback got sick, they had to travel sometimes hundreds of kilometres by horse, cart, or even camel to reach a doctor, and they often died before they got there. That's when a reverend called John Twin decided something had to be done. He started an experiment using planes as a fast way of transporting doctors to people and the other way around. But of course, to get help, people had to contact the flying doctors first. So, Flynn teamed up with an inventor named Alfred Traeger, who came up with a pedal-powered radio, which allowed people in outback stations to send messages, at first in more slow, and later like this. The first flying doctor took to the sky over Queensland in 1928 in a single engine plane borrowed from Qantas. Many of the early planes had open cockpits, which meant pilots were exposed to the weather. 
They're open navigational devices with a compass, and they use whatever they can find to mark the runways. 90 years on, things are a lot more high-tech, but the flying doctor's mission has stayed the same. So many metals have no relation, as far as I know, to the radio developer, although I should probably find that out. I don't much about that kind of thing. So of course the uh, RFES, the Royal Flight Aperture, is actually both distinct to being the very first civilian air medical transport program in the world, civilian, right? Because everything up to this point has all been military. And this is uh, one of their very modern rivets that they're using, certainly much different than the, uh, the very original aircraft dating, dating back to the early 1900s. And I love their logo, we hop anywhere. I think everyone should adopt this, this concept. We should all have patches with, with kangaroos on them and, uh, and sort of go from there. As a native Canadian, I'm very proud of this heritage. 1946, the very first North American, right? So again, there's always this debate, who's first, what's second? If we're talking about North America now, the very first civilian uh, non-military air medical program was established in Saskatchewan, which is still in service to this day in 1946. And uh, certainly, you know, gets its accolades here on, uh, on one of our Canadian stamps. The difference between life and death. This is what the Air Ambulance Service means to thousands of people in rural Saskatchewan today. Once again, in the great tradition of aviation, the plane is being used to serve human needs, as mercy flights are made to all parts of the province in all seasons. Pneumonia, polio, perforated ulcer, heart failure. In the first month, 42 critical people were brought in, and in the first two years of service, 1,000 cases were thrown in comfort to city hospitals. Good equipment and trained staff give the patients the best possible chance of recovery. One sort of wonders the uh, certainly the um, you know uh, how modern or something that you know the, the, the medical care was provided to the patients once they received the hospital. Certainly, it was much better than what was not available uh, in, in the rural setting. So again, a very integral part of the medical world was getting sick patients from rural regions into places where we can care for them properly. Uh, in the United States, this is the very first, uh, again, certified air ambulance program in the United States in 1947, which ambulance, and they are still in terms, I believe, uh, to this day, out in the Los Angeles region. Right. The utilization of helicopters uh, to move patients or move the wounded was, uh, the, was probably the first reported was on these four days, and why these four days, uh, Second Lieutenant Carter Harmon, who was a member of the U.S. Army Air Corps during World War II, was summoned to go and evacuate or rescue four downed airmen uh, who were shot down in, in the Burma region uh, in, in 1944. And for his efforts flying this sort of primitive helicopter, uh, he received the distinguished flying cross. And here he is here with the uh, four British soldiers that he rescued. And the reason is over a span of four days is because the helicopter couldn't lift all of the men at the same time because of weight issues and actually overheated at one point where it had to be settled on the ground while they waited, uh, you know, uh, obviously anxiously and nervously as the Japanese uh, army was sort of surrounding them. And so a pretty incredible story of the first use, reasonably reported use of a helicopter to move the wounded. Up until this point, it's all been airplanes, right, or post-drawn carriages or whatnot. And as we get into World War II, uh, you know, we have our flight nurses in the community school here, um, moving patients 
uh, and uh, Flight Nurse Lieutenant May Olsen also again uh, evacuating on the C-47 planes. Uh, certainly now we use much larger aircraft uh, to do this, although they are fairly hollowed out and, and uh, you know, minimal luxury, uh, so not much difference. Uh, and then, of course, as we entered the Korean conflict, we saw the word from this opening scene from NASH where they're you know, taking the patients off the helicopter again. Remember, it's interesting because there was no actual medical care provided on the helicopter at the time. They were purely in need of evacuating the wounded from the front line. They were sitting on the skids, right, over here, and here's the arm hanging down, and here's the you know, protection for it as you're flying forward. Uh, but the only sort of medical care in transport is time to be airplanes. Uh, and so here's some examples of, you know, what's, what the air medical evacuation will look like in the military and in Korea in World War II. And then once we get to Vietnam, we start developing more robust field medicine, military research and military medicine sort of becomes more prominent. We have uh, better constant evacuation with what, what is now been deemed return back in the dust-off program. And this article from JAMA in 1968, April 22nd, basically says, Army Air Medical Evacuation Procedures in Vietnam provide services that most soldiers are only 35 minutes away from a medical facility, capable of giving definite, resuscitated, life-saving treatment. The use of a helicopter as a life-saving vehicle has not yet reached its full potential. The experience is that the Army Medical Service has gained in the utilization of helicopter ambulances can and should be translated to comparable civilian emergency health programs. And so in 1968, the Maryland State Police said, well, this sounds like a great concept. And they purchased this Belljet Ranger. And in 1970, the actual first transport of a trauma patient in a medevac helicopter was done to this very facility, uh, maybe 40 or 50 almost years ago at this point, right? So we're sitting in a facility that has a pretty incredible history, but now you just sort of hopefully one additional piece of history to sort of go along with that, right? And uh, this is uh, five years ago when I was in the practical location where I got to go off to the not participate in the This is where we are now, right? situations that has to be a lot of caution taken. But this is modern day. And if any of you decide you want to change your career and certainly not advertising, but hey, why not? <laughs> the very first hospital-based program was out in Colorado, St. Anthony's in nineteen seventy-two, uh, flying this sort of very odd looking uh, helicopter. And you can see how thick the conference are in here, you sort of have a rack up here and your patient would sit here and you know imagine having to do intubation or every management or CPR in this in this kind of setup and you realize quite rather that it's virtually impossible to do anything. And so you're still sort of, even though there's a hospital-based transport program with bags of medications, if the patients should be compensated and they have airway, you know, airway control issues, it would be very difficult to solve that problem in this environment. But alas, this is where our beginnings are, and here is the very first flight crew in 1972 posing by the helicopter. And today, where are we? And so, uh, University of Medical Medical Center, simply because I'm here, but certainly other hospitals and facilities throughout the world have their sort of transfer center set up. If you want to move a patient between facilities, 
uh, more often, we will sort of get on the phone and, and utilize these resources to help make those decisions. And this is the program that is available uh, here at the University of Maryland, the Winter Facility Transports. So, uh, certification has been important. The University of Baltimore County in 95 developed a criminal care paramedic program. We said, hey, we recognize there's a need to train our hospital providers in more advanced levels of care to basically be able to move the patients. Why? Because physicians are just too expensive to do the job. If you go to Europe, most of the hands are helicopter EMS program back with five physicians. Uh, but uh, that is a totally different system. And so we need to find a for a full group financially fiscal, fiscally responsible way of moving patients that let's train our providers who have experience to be able to manage the critical care patients in conjunction with critical care nurses. And so we have core curricula, we have the uh, Association of Critical Care Transport with their transport standards, we have certified agencies now that will certify paramedics and nurses in flight and critical care transport, and we have a variety of sort of other, uh, you know, Membership uh, agencies uh, like American Physician Association, Association of American Services, that one can certainly join and become part of this unbelievable world of uh, medical transport medicine, extremely challenging uh, medical American curriculum that the AMBA puts out. And then we also now have CAMS, which is the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, basically reviews and scrutinizes transport programs to say, hey, we need to meet these criteria in order to be able to do this job and get our certification. And it's, it is exceedingly, there's like a, a Bible, like probably eight thick, inches thick, that basically uh, goes through point by point the criteria that you have to meet to get certified by them. And it also includes things like education, safety, quality improvement, quality assurance, and, and, and so on. Obviously, our conferences, like every other uh, specialty, and our own journal uh, that uh, we can do. And so all of this history and innovation has brought us to where we are today to discuss essentially the movement of patients between two facilities and also within the same facility. Okay? And so whenever we're looking at moving a patient, we have to decide what level of care they require. Are they just going to require sort of wheelchair movement or simple structure for a stable patient? Or do we sort of advance support skills that they have a you know a simple infusion running? Uh, that, that doesn't necessarily put a care transport level. And so there are sort of guidelines and outlines that sort of suggest who needs to move by what means, right? And whenever you are moving a patient or accepting a patient, these are the, these are the discussions that have to occur to figure out what level of transport you're going to need. And then, of course, you have to decide whether you're moving a patient by, by air or by ground. And air not only includes loading in your helicopter, but also includes jet, right? Because if you're over in Europe or on vacation in the Caribbean and you have to be repatriated back to the States for care, a helicopter is not going to make that trip. And then you have to understand flight physiology, lots of fascinating bits and pieces that go into making these decisions. The definition of the patient requiring critical care transport, that's what I want to focus on more in this lecture, is certainly the patient that has critical illness or injury that obviously acutely impairs one or vital organ systems. There's a high probability in their life threatening deterioration of the patient's condition during transport. And so those of us who practice critical care understand this. Right? And this is this is when you're sending the patient, you need to understand how bad they are and if they're likely to be compensated while in groups and, and sort of have a plan laid out for that. Right? The team that is going to come, obviously, is usually at least two clinical personnel, 
They have an extended scope of practice, education, training, experience, and obviously the recommended decision-making skills to assess the critical ill patient and support them using all means at their discretion uh, and whatever sort of is committed to them by their medical director. In the hopes of getting the patient from point A to point B without further clinical deterioration. But should that happen, they should be prepared to address that. Right? And so here are a couple of my providers at, at St. Luke's. Uh, there's uh, Dara Omer and Teresa, and uh, uh, this is a medical student that I coerced into playing the patient for the day. Uh, but alas, this is, this is sort of what we do. Right? And how do you sort of get there? Well, you say, hey, I, uh, I want to get a change of career, and I have my certification for my licenses. You have to have oftentimes a minimal or minimum number of hours uh, in your area of expertise, and then obtaining advanced certifications, complete you know, whatever your requirement hours of variety of transports, and then you can be deemed a critical care transport specialist. Now, how do we know what we're doing here? Because everyone sort of does things a little bit differently. And so over the years, there's been sort of a variety of papers written to sort of examine, uh, you know, what is this concept of medical transport? How do we meet patients? Are there sort of guidelines? Are there recommendations we can make to make sure this is carried out, uh, you know, fruitfully with, with minimal challenge? And so in 2004, uh, this paper in the Critical Care Medicine Journal came out, uh, sort of found some guidelines for inter and intra-hospital transfer of critical patients. And it basically said, well, one, there needs to be involvement of the entire team. This is not just up to the physicians running the show, but we also need the input from the nurses and respiratory therapists and, of course, hospital administration from medical legal standpoints. And, of course, more importantly, the people who are actually going to be doing the movement of the patients, right? So all these multidisciplinary, everything that we do, and we all coordinate, you need to perform a needs assessment of a facility that focuses on the patient, demographics, the transfer volume, transfer of patients, and available resources, who's going, what are they taking, what are we doing, and communication is paramount in everything that we do. Right? There should be a standardized transfer plan that is developed and implemented. And like everything that we do, we always need to reevaluate uh, the work that we put in and the outcomes that we have. Because if we don't do that, we're never going to learn, we're never going to grow. I just had the, fortune, the great fortune of spending a couple of weeks in London with the London Animal Service, and they actually have what they call a DMD, which is sort of a line of so death and disability, but they, they review cases from the day before to so sort of pick them apart and figure out how one they can be better, uh, how, how the call went, and so it's stuff that we need to do sort of as a debrief to review all of our, all of our cases and situations. Now, the great thing in this article is that they sort of put this nice flow sheet together, which uh, I'm very happy to share with you. I don't sort of have to go over it. Essentially, you know, assess the patient condition is stable, yes or no, follow through the risks and benefits of the transfer, uh, select the receiving facility, you know, how far are they, what resources are available, and availability, which anymore is a great challenge, and I'm sure most of you have, have experience, and then so on and so forth to, you know, figure out the best way to move the patient and get them where they need to be. The concept of secondary transport to critical elementary patient means after they've come to the hospital and they've been stabilized, and now we have to move them to probably a grander or bigger facility that has more resources available. And so the reasons that we would look to do that obviously is if it's a smaller hospital, more usually rural, they just don't have the facilities. They uh, don't have the, the means to investigate uh, you know, whether that buy or whatnot. The specialist facilities are not there. Uh, it's a repatriation from a foreign country, uh, certainly lack of clinical experience. And we try to have to decide on the factors that influence your choice of transport, right? Geographical factors, traffic and weather conditions, cost overall, and so on and so forth, right? So these are all things to think about. 
once we look in and we decide, okay, we're going to move the patient, if we have no method to move the patient, we have to decide which way, right? And so again, you start to look at the pros and cons of moving. If it's air transport, it can be slow to get there, you need a landing site, another can be a factor. And so even though you think in the grand scheme it may be quote unquote faster to move the patient by air, if you have adverse other conditions, it's actually faster and more smoothly and to send them by ground. Okay? So a few things to understand. Now, we sort of have this concept from this paper, and I think it's pretty logical. Obviously, the time that a critical patient spends at a facility that does not have the resources, they are most likely not going to do as well. And so, moving them uh, is imperative and as extremely as possible. And then, uh, this paper by some of my colleagues at Cooper basically said, well, it seems that once a patient is maybe admitted to an ICU in another facility and then transferred to a bigger facility, but the other thing is what else is coming from the emergency department. So I don't know if that's your experience. I guess it depends on obviously a lot of factors uh, you know, in that. Regardless of that, though, I think what basically this comes down to is we need to do a better job of coordinating the movements of patients. And uh, this paper sort of looked at the concept of a handover tool. They do not sort of display in the paper. I will show you an example of one. But when the patient gets to the facility and before that, we should have sort of a checklist of things that we need to look at to sort of understand the likelihood of the patient deteriorating. And uh, this was uh, just uh, the, I guess, R&D competition, you know, research competition here, where they basically said uh, to develop a, uh, a clinical prediction within my high-risk patients. I actually would like to see what their rule is. This was just sort of their abstract. Um, I couldn't find the actual clinical decision rule that they were using. Uh, but it's stuff like this in conjunction with a checklist will probably be a great way to go to assure the safety of the patients. Right? Now, of course, uh, like anything in medicine, right, my facility does things differently than your facility, and it's a little different from transport, and the handoff practices among centers are, are varying across, uh, you know, across the spectrum. And of course, this will add to uh, medical errors and, uh, and potential uh, problems with the patients. And so, this team sent out a survey that said, you know, what is the training background of the staff member who takes the initial call? Uh, prior to patient's arrival, do you require any documentation to be transmitted? Is there a free recorded conversation between the sending person and the receiving person? Uh, is there clinical status updates? And so for my program, when I accept a patient to the ICU, I have a discussion with the sending person. We have our patient, our transport provider, who is a, our, our transport our coordinator, who is a nurse. And we have this conversation in conjunction with any uh, ancillary program, whether it's IR from neurointerventional or cardiology from MI alert, that we need to everyone on the same page to understand what's going on. And my team will actually provide us with updates during the transport to let us know how far they are, the status of the patient, and so forth. Okay. So these are these are aspects that the, you know, when you're developing a program in your facility, the same things to think about. Okay. Uh, obviously, um, if we have a device like this, this can hopefully help prevent um, deterioration once the patient gets there. Because how many of you in the situation where the patient arrives and we sort of immediately decompensate, right? Because the sort of and we scold and say, oh, you know, they didn't do they did the best care they probably could. But remember, remember as a savvy putting in central lines or fully transverse pacers, and so we're very quick to judge when we don't realize and remember that some of these providers just don't have the experience to do this. And so a checklist like this can basically help, uh, you know, help the situation. And for the air medical and aviation world, they're very big on checklists, right? Checklists guarantee that you're not going to miss things. And, uh, and I think we need to get better with this as well. 
And so by doing this, although maybe not such significant, such significant uh, change, they did probably have some decrease in ICU mortality and you know, certainly decreased need for emergency intubation upon patient arrival. And so it's probably the beginning of something that everyone sort of needs to, to reevaluate CLI. And again, apps like this, uh, which, you have, which you guys have here for referring physicians, they can get on the app and call in and you know, access shock trauma or University of Maryland and send the patients appropriately and speak with an appropriate clinician to get the patient moved is also important so that there's good communication and direction to the sending facility. Because oftentimes there's not enough instruction or good discussion with the sending provider to say, hey, take a break for a second and let's discuss what you need to do, what are your limitations, what are you comfortable doing. And of course, our wonderful hotel on this Inter-hospital transport, who thinks is more dangerous or less dangerous than inter-facility transport? Just show of hands. Who thinks is more dangerous? All right, we have one. Okay, two. All right. I will tell you that uh, it is probably more dangerous. Why? The movement of patients is the specialty of the transport teams. They are used to having adverse events. They understand that these things can happen. They are ready for them. When we move a patient from the ICU to like CT scan, who really thinks about bad things that can happen? Probably one person, maybe not. Right? Do we go through a checklist and uh, a review of final portfolio with the patient and say, hey, is there oxygen available? Do we have the proper resources? How many of you move patients? Or participate? Two, three, okay. So I do it, I help it if you need to, but I will also tell you this is something that I'm working on to improve in our facility as well. Right? And so moving the patient in the intra-hospital realm can actually be more dangerous than the intra-facility. Right? Even though we have the resources, if we're stuck in an MRI, are there resources there? No, not one, right? Because I can go into the MRI suit, right? Unless it's all plastic. And so not, we're mostly all familiar with a patient who looks like this, wires and tubes and lines and monitors everywhere. Or on ECMO, and you have to say, we can send them to CT. Huh, all right, good. How are we going to do that, right? Very carefully, but how many of you actually go through a, a sort of movement or, or an established checklist that says, this is what we need to do to assure the safety of our patient and make sure we get there and back without any problem? Probably none of us, right? So something to think about now as you're, as you're continuing to be involved in your training. These are obviously very bad places to get stuck. This is an even worse place to get stuck, and this is a photo from a friend uh, that we have in common, Randy Wax, who's up in, in, in Toronto. This is the connection between two hospitals in Toronto, and yeah, something that happens here. Is a radio communicated cell phone signal out of here? No. Right? Nothing, nothing's happening in the bomb shelter. And this is obviously the worst place that you don't want to end up in that sewer. And, um, the European Society for Intensive Care Medicine has this great uh, patient-centered acute care training program. Uh, one of their modules happens to be all on patient transport. And basically they talk about this concept that they see an intra-hospital transport of an ICU patient poses fewer risks at inter-facility because the safe environment of the hospital is not abandoned. However, you can be stranded and you can be unprepared to deal with the things that may come up while you're moving a patient. And so you don't want to be this guy with your Wilson soccer ball sitting there and, and figuring out how to get off the island, or be prepared. And so we know that adverse things can happen to patients whenever they're moving, right? They can happen in the ICU, they can certainly happen when the patient is moving, and of course in the unit we're prepared, moving them, we're not prepared, as prepared as we should be. 
And so this team sort of broke that up into major patient events and minor. I think we sort of have the concept of that in where the patient gets extubated. And importantly, they uh, have hemodynamic instability. And how are we going to address these things while we're moving the patient? And so uh, some of my other colleagues uh, can design this paper, focus on risk identification and prevention of these bad things from happening. And I said, oh, look at all these complexities. You have a simple bed, you have a patient with, again, with multiple monitors and, and hemodynamic support devices and ventilators and CRT. And, it gets to be cumbersome. And once you have to do something when you're testing, it becomes sort of really nerve-wracking to get these patients moved. And they said, wow, these are some of the potential risk factors, right? Uh, people have been sick, of course, you said you use 10 all the time. So again, it's institutional specific. You know, if you're unfamiliar with the equipment, how many of you know how to use the, uh, what kind of uh, monitors do you have here for defibrillation and, and whatnot? Zoles. Who's familiar with how to use those monitors? Okay. Have you ever used them? Right. Okay, so maybe half of you. So whenever I teach ACLS, I don't necessarily teach the course. I teach the providers and the nurses. Here's the code card. This is the monitor. When we call out the response, we need to ABC and you can have to use this monitor, right? Because there are a number of providers who have no concept of how to use the equipment. But let's say calculate the amount of oxygen left in a tank when you're transporting, right? Things that we sort of take for granted that the Flight crews or, or critical care ground crews do with, without, without hesitation. Right? And obviously, fire to inspect equipment is, is paramount. We need to have we need to have our business together with the patients. And so they basically said, hey, there's a, a few factors here: patient factors, system factors, and personnel factors. And of course, if everything is out of synchrony, can harm the patient. Some of our uh, patient factors, you know, obviously they're intubated. Equipment factors for system factors and the length of travel, no checklist again, it's on the checklist. And some of the staff factors would be things like, uh, you know, unaccompanied by a physician. Do you always need a physician to go? Not necessarily, but we need to understand which patients they require. Do we have adequate monitoring or is the monitoring inadequate? Do we have the appropriate education on how to move a patient? Right? How many of you have been formally trained on how to move a patient? Okay? How many of you have been formally trained on how to kill a patient? Four people, right? Five, okay? So the things that we may have to do infrequently are the things that we really need to train for and, and have a better education, right? And of course, communication is paramount. Communicating between the team, communicating between the place that you're going, vice versa, right? Very, very, very important, right? And uh, this is probably going to show up somewhere later, I guess, in the test app or whatnot, right? And so I'm not going to belabor this, but you know these are some of the problems and prevention strategies. Things are logical, right? If the lines are there, if you're moving an echo patient, make sure someone's guarding those lines, make sure that nothing is tangled, make sure you have oxygen, and, and so forth. Now, who often goes on transports? The very junior person, right? And so does the junior person have any concept of what they're doing? Usually not. They've probably been a physician or practitioner for a week when they send on their first transport. And so one thing we really need to do as more senior people is say, okay, hold on a second. You want to do this transport because it's educational for you. I have done it. Let's go. And we're going to walk through this process that you become educated in the ways of the transport. Right? So it, as, as senior people, it is incumbent upon us to train the junior people, not just assume that they know what they're doing or throw them out there for the rules together. Right. This is a very rare picture of a physician on transports that was caught one night 
this week, yes, moving a patient, all right? And so uh, I don't necessarily be willing I'm just waiting for the elevator, right? And this paper was great. Congress has to develop a checklist to increase safety of intra-hospital transport of critical patients, which certainly can be used for both inter and intra. And again, they basically interview IC physicians and nurses and say, what are the things that you need in order to, in order for this to work well? And they develop this really nice checklist. You know, things like, do we have sufficient intravenous medication? Because how often are you moving down the hallway and the propofol runs out, right? Or the fentanyl under stops? Or, uh, you know, uh, or is the infusion pump battery uh, charged? Or is it self infusing as you're moving, right? So, little things that can happen that you don't always necessarily think about because we say, oh, that's the nurse's responsibility. But it's really the team's responsibility. Because that patient is ultimately our responsibility when we move them. So a really sort of nice, fairly detailed checklist um, you know, to help uh, make sure that the transport is done safely. Now, this was sort of a really cool device. Again, I had nothing to do with it. I just thought it was, it was that sort of an even apparatus uh, that's, you know, with the ergonomic quick coupling of trolley and bed, preferable at the foot for optimal access to the patient's head, right? So there are devices out there that will help to make this a much more efficient streamlined process rather than like, stacking oxygen tanks on the bed and the monitor at the foot and the patient's got multiple fractures, right? And, and trying to figure out where else we can stuff stuff on top of the patient so we're not impeding their respiratory, respiratory drive. Uh, and so, you know, devices like this are worthwhile looking into to do things properly and safely. Again, this is a wonderful program through uh, ESICM that goes through a variety of concepts. And so, we've you know, never been on this side, so I would encourage you to look at it. But this is the, the, the transport uh, module uh, that really goes down into sort of breaks down into knowledge, skills, and behavior, things that we sort of need to look at and understand to do this job properly. And the attitudes, right? Like, not to recognize your personal limitations, seek and accept assistance or supervision. Right? None of us knows everything. So, we need to be humble and say, hey, I need help with this. This is something I need to work on and, and, and create an educational program to, uh, to do the job properly. Uh, Dr. Rubinson was, uh, was part of this uh, great uh, paper that came out in a chest in 2014 about evacuating ICUs, certainly with you know, hurricanes and whatnot that come out. And this is a, a, a longer read, but very worthwhile to sort of understand the complexities and challenges moving patients. You know, it's, it's not enough to move a patient in a stable environment in the hospital, understanding the risks that can happen, you know, the risks and problems that can develop. But when you have a disaster that, that arises, who's prepared? Like, you know, let's say there's, you know, God forbid the terrorist attack or whatnot on the city or some of that fire that happens in the hospital. Who's prepared and what plan do you have to get these patients evacuated to a safe environment with all the lines and tubes and orange, right? So if, if you're not familiar with that, I behoove you to sort of sit down and understand you know, what programs are in place and, and educate yourself. It's not enough for us anymore just to do medicine. We have to understand logistics of doing this as well. Logistics and, and communication are, are, are paramount to doing this job properly. This was uh, uh, for Dr. Landry. I believe this is probably something that he has done before as, uh, as a long rescue provider in, in the Air Force. And so, thankfully, you know, moving patients on ECMO is usually done more simply in your facility, usually not as, uh, as involved as this but it can be. And you, know, you can just sort of see the amount of equipment here that, that, you know, that it takes to move a patient to keep them stable. And this, of course, is the back of the C-17 transport plan done by the premier transport teams. Uh, but we know patients that have sort of the same challenges, okay? And the thing we need to remember is that 
Transportation of a critical location requires ongoing delivery organ support because we can't just pull wires out and say, yeah, we don't want all this stuff. We can just take you down and hopefully get you back in time to hook you back up. It just doesn't happen and it should never happen. Uh, if there's failure to prepare both the patient and the transport team, you may have set off a little of care. So you must, must prepare and understand the challenges that you are now, that you are now undertaking. Okay? And if you don't prepare, then obviously there's great threat to the patients. And if bad things happen, as physicians, we never want to feel like we've caused harm to a patient. That is, you must feeling that the only you've ever had it before, you're, you're afraid things, you feel awful, you're not doing your job. And so instead of having to feel that way, just be prepared, right? It's very simple. The principles of transport are identical, whether it's from the field to the hospital, whether it's in between hospitals, or whether it's in the hospital, right? It's all the same thing, right? No matter what you're doing with the patient, the, the principles and concepts should all be the same. Remember that you have to weigh the benefits and the risks of moving the patient. Do I really need a CT scan? Does the patient need to move from this facility at this time? Is this an active MR or active stroke and use neurointerventional or they have a head and they're relatively stable and can buy some time, right? Uh, and so we need to always assess this benefit. Everything that we do is this benefit, no matter whether it's medicine or life in general, okay? Now, uh, certainly, the risks and benefits of the transfer always must be assessed, right? So, always fully assess the patient. Always, you know, again, the benefits and the advantages or the disadvantages. Uh, make sure there's appropriate support for the people who are going and involved in know what they're doing, okay? And have the appropriate resources to, to do it successfully. And always make sure the equipment is checked and ready to go, right? So, these are sort of your four uh, tenets to take away from this. And always consider alternative modes and methods for doing things. Pay attention to safety. Uh, understand the complications that can arise. Continuance of care plans. Always have and, and potentially develop if it's not there. Effective handover and documentation and use checklists. Advise only if you don't have one to make sure this is a streamlined process. And again, remember and understand your limitations and the limitations of the system and everybody involved in the patient because not everybody has the same level of expertise in doing this. So this is obviously uh, something we're trying to avoid by having proper plans in place uh, because it would be rather difficult to land a helicopter over a helipad that has wires running over it, right? I'm not sure who did that, but, right? And so if there's no communication and the helicopter comes to land here, they never got a, what they call a no-tam, right? Or a, a sort of an, an, an advisor to a pilot, and they come in to land, and they realize there's wires here, it's nighttime, they're not going to see this. This can be badness, right? And so, simple thing like saying, hey, everyone hold on a second, time out, once you evaluate and discuss and communicate, would uh, minimize the chance there would be disasters. Okay. So, remember, although the intra intermuscular transport must comply with regulations, the safety of your patient is enhanced during its transport by establishing organized, efficient process supported by the appropriate equipment and the personnel. Make sure everyone's trained, make sure everyone knows what's going on, communicate, review, an extra review, and then go and do what you have to do. Right? And again, it's all about teamwork, whether pre-hospital, the inter-hospital, all of us in the hospital, we're also doing the same thing. We need to just be involved and help each other out and understand our limitations. Right? And above all, keep calm, transport it, do good work, and uh, our patients will, will be all the better for us. Okay? Uh, so that is it for today. I hope this was reasonably educational. I hope you got something out of it. Perhaps a little bit of 
an understanding of the challenges of the transport world, things to think about, hopefully now you will look at transport differently than what we've had. Um, so good, you guys have any questions for me at all?